Welcome to the Governance Podcast, hosted by the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society here at King's College, University of London. My name is Mark Pennington, and I'm the director of the Centre. One of the most widely discussed topics in the field of governance and political economy in recent years concerns the impact of what are often called neoliberal ideas. Much of that debate has focused on the extent to which many of these ideas, broadly associated with the promotion of markets, and which rose to prominence in the late 1970s and through the 1980s, have continued to be influential in the post-financial crisis era, and now in a COVID and, co and post-COVID era, which has witnessed massive government interventions in economic life. We're very pleased to have with us today someone who's written extensively and authoritatively on the topic of neoliberalism, Professor Will Davies, who's based in the Department of Politics and International Relations, at Goldsmiths University of London. Among many other works, he's the author of the 2016 book, The Limits of Neoliberalism, and most recently, a, a new special issue of the journal Theory, Culture and Society on the topic post-neoliberalism, question mark. So welcome, Will. It's very good to have you with us today. I wonder whether we could start off by talking about this new special issue of theory, culture and society, which you've put out together with Nicholas Gain. What was the motivation for putting this volume together? Yeah, thanks. And, and thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. Um, it actually began, uh, as is the way with the speed of academic publishing, um, in a pre-COVID world. Um, and actually, the, the pieces um, would, would, would uh, are fairly clear on that, I think. I mean, it's um, many of the pieces are um, were written, I guess, over the course of sort of 2018, 19, that kind of time. Um, and the, the initial motivation was um, that at the particular historical moment of, I guess, 2016 was it was a big year for people asking what was happening to globalization, what was happening to neoliberalism, what was happening to the liberal elites that had become the target of these so-called populist revolts in the form of both the Brexit referendum, but also um, obviously the election of Donald Trump. Of course, there were also various um, so-called populist movements on both the left and the right that had been uh, emerging across uh, Europe in particular from roughly uh, 20. 12, 13, that sort of time onwards, with uh, Syriza on, and Podemos on the left, uh, Le Pen, Salvini, the AFD on the right, these sorts of, of parties. Uh, and I think there was a, a, a sense that many people shared, particularly when Brexit came along uh, and Trump, that this was the uh, a revolt against some sense of neoliberalism, some idea of neoliberalism, certainly against uh, globalization. And after all, people like Farage and Trump spoke very explicitly about how they were taking aim at the what Trump would call the globalists or the global elite and these sorts of things. People like Steve Bannon were also kind of fervently against um, these, these elites. Um, and initially, this looked like it was a, a crisis for neoliberalism. Nick Gain and I, Nick is at Warwick in the sociology department there, uh, and the editors of, of Theory, Culture and Society, Mike Featherstone and, and others, wanted to at least kind of set out to explore uh, what this all meant. Um, and we set about finding many interesting writers on topics of, of, of nationalism and its relationship to neoliberalism on the outright, uh, but also some people who've done some of the most interesting recent historical work on neoliberalism, uh, such as Melinda Cooper, uh, Doric Gaver, uh, Quince Lobodian. Um, 
and I think as the, the issue came together and also as more um, slightly more nuanced perspectives on these populist uprisings started to emerge, it became we, we, we sort of rode back from the idea that, that, that these revolts were, were, were strictly post neoliberal, because clearly, as many people have, have pointed out, including uh, Quinn Slobodian, uh, but also others like Philip Mirowski and um, people like Michel Fair and others, um, that maybe this isn't necessarily a kind of um, post neoliberal, but is uh, perhaps a, as William Callison and, and Zachary Manfredi's volume, uh, mutant to neoliberalism has it is, is a kind of mutation in, in the in, in a gene that, that can be traced the whole way back to the 1920s. Uh, and at various times, the neoliberal thought collective, as Murawski calls it, has actually indulged in forms of nationalism, forms of racism, forms of uh, uh, efforts to defend patriarchal norms and this sort of thing. So therefore, that suggests that perhaps the appearance of figures like Viktor Orban or, or whoever it might be, or, or, or the, the Brexit party or, or these sorts of things, aren't necessarily kind of uh, diametrically opposed to neoliberalism, but have quite a complicated uh, history and genealogy that, that, that in some senses overlaps with aspects of neoliberalism. I think clearly they are opposed to what you might call a third way uh, cosmopolitan 1990s vision of neoliberalism, but that there are other traditions that perhaps they that they are more entangled with. Okay, that's great. So, I mean, I think this really raises, um, you know, an interesting question that certainly struck me from reading the, the volume, and it, it is a question that's quite long-standing, which is really to to say, is there, and has there ever been an essence of neoliberalism? Um, yeah. I mean, if you look at, and I know some of the papers in the volume refer to Foucault's um, lectures on the birth of biopolitics, which have been very influential in the way that people categorize neoliberalism. I mean, he identifies um, the ordo-liberal strand um, associated with a number of continental thinkers. He identifies a Chicago economic strand, but also a strand that he refers to that overlaps with that, which he refers to as a narco-liberalism. Mm. Um, he identifies Hayek as a thinker who is somewhere in between these two different strands. Um, you then also have, although he doesn't talk about them specifically, public choice theorists who are very much influ influenced by um, a rational actor, neoclassical economic model of man, but applied to politics. But you have that in very sharp contrast, I would say, to the Hayekians who reject the idea of homo economic as a useful model of, of human action. So when you have all of these uh, contradictory traditions, uh, they're not completely contradictory, they do overlap in certain areas. To what extent can we say there is an essence of neoliberalism? Yeah, I think, I mean, as a, a, a someone who is, uh, has a background in sociology and has also written quite a lot by, about, about Foucault and been influenced by Foucault, I'm nervous of talking of essences because that implies that there's some sort of, something kind of <laughs> metaphysical going on or some sort of ontology that has a kind of, yeah. some sort of inner a, a sort of kernel of, of truth or, or a logic that is transcendent in some way. And I, I certainly would not suggest that. Uh, I think that we know as a matter of historical fact that many of the figures that you've just referred to were co-travelers within what um, Philip Murawski called the neoliberal thought collective. And for Murawski, it was a network that Hayek was crucially involved in, founding the Mont Pelerin Society in the 1940s, 
Um, and that attracted philosophers, lawyers, economists from all over the world, um, from Freiburg, the liberal school that you referred to, the Chicago School of Neoclassical Economics, uh, people like Milton Friedman and, and, and others as well. Um, and it also would have uh, appealed to uh, Austrian economists such as Hayek, obviously Hayek, he was the founder, but but there were other figures who, Hayek's philosophical buddies, such as Michael Polanyi and, and these sorts of people, Karl Popper, were also uh, part of this as well, not often seen as neoliberals as such, but they were they were part of it. So we can we can do a kind of genealogy of, of the thinkers, which many people have done, um, Mirowski, but also Quince Lobodian's Globalists, which is a history of what he calls the uh, uh, Geneva School, which is uh, particularly figures like Wilhelm Rupke, who was an ordo liberal, mm-hmm. um, but uh, also um, figures who were interested in the construction of, uh, of, of, of multilateral institutions that ultimately became realized, Slobodian argues, in the World Trade Organization in the 1990s. Um, so there's a lot of work that's been done on that. Um, and there's other, other very good histories. Nancy McLean on, on the Public Choice School. Um, uh, Melinda Cooper's superb family values on, on on some of the kind of campaigning that these figures did around issues of of, of the family and the, the dismantling of the welfare state from the 1960s onwards. What I suppose I, in my own work, would say, and and this is in the limits of neoliberalism in, in my book that you referred to at the beginning, is that um, neoliberalism. One thing which many of these uh, thinkers share is. Um, in some sense, an economic view of the state. Uh, now, not necessarily the public choice view of the state, which, as you say, is a, is a, is a kind of rather reductionist, uh, neoclassical idea that bureaucrats and lawyers and, and, and representatives, uh, legislators and representatives are, are just as, 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 as sort of self-interested as anyone else and this sort of thing, Patrick Buchanan and, and, and others. Um, but the, the, state, uh, the, the, the state can be... Uh, understood, rationalized, and criticized according to some kind of economic uh, logic. Um, now, in the case of, of, of Hayek, and Hayek clearly, and uh, you, you know this better than I, uh, but Hayek clearly had a, had a very strong understanding of what the state's view was, but that it was a view that uh, uh, the state um, ultimately, um, it, it, its, its purpose was to was, was to be found within the the, the Cadillacy of the of, of the free market in some sense. Um, so the, there isn't the same liberal sense of a separate domain of politics in which there are these sort of rights and uh, freedoms and so on, which are uh, in a sort of separate ontological domain from the political in the way that there would be for someone like John Stuart Mill and these sorts of figures for whom, as criticized by Polanyi, the, the political and the economic are, are belong in very different different spaces. I mean, Hayek's very clear in the road to serfdom that economic freedom and political freedom are the same thing, and, and Milton Friedman and others uh, bear this out. So the state is uh, a, a type of economic actor, although it is an, an exceptional economic actor because it has particular exceptional uh, capacities and purposes and so on. It's not simply a, a, a like a firm in the way that, you know, some quite reductionist uh, sort of e- economistic views might might suggest. So the second thing which I would say is that the state um, has a particular function in the upholding of competition of, of, of one kind or another. Now, the definition of competition is is very various in 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 in, in the tradition of neoliberal thought. Um, of course, there are uh, ordo liberal views of competition which are, are quite sort of formalistic and. 
um, uh, strictly anti-monopolistic and, and so on. And then there are Chicago views of competition, which are much more sympathetic to, to competition. Um, and then there are views of, 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 of competitiveness that I talk about in my book, which is more about trying to kind of sow the, the kind of cultural and, and political seeds of a dynamic and enterprising society and economy, which, are, which is uh, something that someone like Michael Porter, I, I, I examined the, the, thing, you know, this, the work of these sort of business strategies. Uh, but the, for me, competition becomes a, a central constitutional principle uh, of, of, of economy and society. Uh, and, and which the state has uh, a central purpose in upholding. I mean, Hayek argues in The Road to Serfdom that you can either plan against competition, which is what any type of totalitarian or social democratic or Keynesian project does, or you can plan for competition, which is what a neoliberal state does. And this creates the kind of, you know, Tina logic of Thatcherism in a way. So, well, there, there is an alternative, but there's basically only two, two options, which is, so I suppose there is an alternative, but there's quasi-socialist options and then there are com pro-competition options. And I think it's that sort of, that kind of logic, which I think you can see, it's there in the work of Ludwig von Mises back in the 1920s as well, which is that, you know, you either have a system in which the central goals of society are established by some kind of imposed consensus by the state, possibly involving violence, possibly involving something quite totalitarian, or you have a system in which the values and the preferences and the tastes of society are in some sense a sort of competition with each other. And there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brutal logic, but it's also quite a difficult one to, to, to argue with. And that, that, that's why partly how the, 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 the force of, of public intellectuals such as Milton Friedman was so powerfully felt from the 1960s onwards was simply say, well, how are you going to agree on a common uh, cooperative goal for society other than via um, some kind of competitive logic? That's yeah. I think that's a, a very fair characterization. Actually, I think that's 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 excellent. Um, just thinking about you know the way we think about the state and how it relates to neoliberalism, but also actually to other ideas. How can we think about it? I mean, you mentioned Foucault there. If you think about Foucault's understanding of the state, I mean, in my view as I see what he's saying is that the state, like anything else, has no essence. The state is really just a site at which various discourses sort of either cohere with each other or contradict each other. And that seems to me very relevant to thinking about how we understand what has happened over the last 40 or 50 years and what's happening now in terms of thinking of the state as being a sort of amalgam of different discursive influences. Mm. So if we were to think about neoliberalism, um, what would you say have been the most influential of these different strands? Um, how have they interacted with each other and how have they actually formed maybe hybrids with non-neoliberal yeah. discourses? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so, I mean, this also relates a little bit to my, my contribution to the Theory Culture Society volume, which is called The Revenge of Sovereignty on Government, which is about sort of, I guess, the last... Um, six, seven years of, of, of what's happened within, within to, to neoliberal states, which I argue is, is partly a, an elimination of a, of, of a kind of economistic uh, rationale in favour of, of a more sovereigntist uh, rationale. I mean, so for Foucault, I mean, Foucault argues, I mean, he gave two years of, of lectures on liberalism and neoliberalism, 77 to 78 and 78 to 79. And in the first set, which is published as security territory population, um, he, he develops this notion of government, which is became hugely influential in particularly in, 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 in British sociology in the 1990s by the work of people like Nicholas Rose 
yeah. um, Thomas Osborne, Andrew Barry, um, uh, these sorts of figures. Um, and that, what I think people found so interesting and exciting about that was that effectively what, what Foucault was opening the door to, which, which Rose and others really then ran with, was this a, a vision of, uh, of, of state power that actually sort of decenters the state in some sense. So that actually the way society is governed is much more about sort of, uh, this coincided incidentally with a whole literature around governance by people like Rod Rhodes and others in the, in the 90s, uh, Christopher Hood on new public management and these sorts of figures, um, that, that there was this sudden kind of sense that actually maybe the state was not as, as Hobbes had said, i.e. a kind of a central repository of some kind of absolutist overwhelming power uh, upon which civil society is then, or through by which civil society is then founded and made possible. But actually perhaps the power that is um, most important to what we think of as, as politics and the state is actually dispersed through society via um, forms of public-private partnership, via alliances between uh, centralized bureaucrats and decentralized social scientists, uh, professionals, experts, medics, psychiatrists, that actually what Foucault called governmentality is this kind of dispersal of, 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 of discursive and calculative logics that have no center. They don't sort of emanate outwards from the state um, in the sense of uh, as the way that from a sort of strict, from a rather traditional vision of state sovereignty as, as, as sort of founded by Hobbes, but then really kind of also adopted by, say, Max Weber with his famous definition of the modern state as having a monopoly on legitimate use of violence. Uh, but that actually governmentality is, is sort of scattered and dispersed and it has no, if you go and try and find the, the sort of essence of it, the center of it, you won't find it. It right. sort of, yeah. it, it flows in all directions. And now I suppose this captured um, something quite, something quite like, whether this, I'm not saying that, I mean, Foucault, as you mentioned, didn't, didn't write or speak about the Virginia School of, of Public Choice uh, explicitly. But certainly, I think that um, what um, Foucault's, in some ways, American neoliberalism, um, which is fervently anti-metaphysical, if you read people like Milton Friedman, but also uh, one of the schools that I, is, I discuss in my book, the Law and Economics School of, of Richard Posner, um, uh, Gary Becker, to some extent, uh, Stigler was 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 sort of a, a, a sort of adjacent to them. Um, what they were particularly concerned with, and I think this is a tradition that comes from American pragmatism, actually, um, which isn't necessarily on the on the right or the left, but which is trying to strip politics of its of its metaphysics, trying to turn politics back into a sort of rather prosaic, mundane question of who benefits. You you you've pursued this this course of action, what are the costs, what are the benefits? This is a very sort of mundane, rather sort of, you know, commonsensical approach to both politics and law, which is, well, you say this law is good, but what are the effects? You know, like who, who's actually benefiting from it? Maybe it's not a good law because maybe we can't kind of prove that it actually does anyone any good. This is the kind of rather sort of, sort of, I suppose, kind of deceptively simple logic of the Chicago School and the law and economics movement, and also of public choice school, which is because after all, it, it can be, you know, you can, you can, you can use it to dismantle potentially quite important laws as well. Um, but it, it's a sort of, uh, it's a sort of rather anti-metaphysical view. Now, you could say that the, the governmentality school uh, and the focus on governance, which really took off in the 90s, came about at a time when states appeared to have sort of rather sort of given away their sovereignty, you know, that they'd given it away to the global market, you know, a sort of era of, you know, this was a time when 
you know, great Alan Greenspan famously said, it doesn't matter who's the American president anymore because ultimately market forces rule the world. You know, that, that ultimately, you know, politics is just sort of for show and actually uh, real power has now been sort of completely handed over to the sort of sublime force of, of the global economy in some way. Uh, and the rest is just, you know, tinkering with governance mechanisms, trying to align incentives of public servants and teachers and doctors and sort of everything becomes rather mechanistic and, and, and empiricist in some way. I think what happened in 2008, and this is where my paper picks up, is a sudden rediscovery that the state had never given away that much sovereignty at all. Because actually what the state had to do in 2008 was to draw on the fact that it is able to borrow and spend and take emergency decisions on a scale that nothing else is. Not, you know, Jeff Bezos can't do that. Um, you know, the global economy in some kind of diffuse sense can't take those sorts of decisions. So that what people like Gordon Brown and... Um, what you know the figures around George W. Bush were doing over the autumn of 2008 and on through 2009 was uh, a demonstration that actually sovereignty resided with the state, uh, that the state is capable of doing exceptional things that no other actor in the economy is capable of doing. But I think the interesting thing, and, and, and this is where I think you know one of the most interesting books on, on this kind of question of sovereignty and, and the economy, uh, which I was very influenced by, is Joseph Virgil's um, The Ascendancy of Finance, is and his argument is that actually states uh, have always implicitly shared their sovereignty with financial markets since uh, the since the 17th century, since the birth of central banking and the birth of of, of, of financial markets as we now understand them, and the birth of, of of national debts as we now understand them. But there is a sudden explosion of sovereigntist discourses from uh, 2008 onwards. Now, in terms of going back to your original question, so this is rather a, a long answer to the question, but I mean, you know, after that moment, this is when people went back to read the Ordo Liberals, went back to read Hayek as well, and realized that actually, you know, there was quite a strong concern with sovereignty in some of these neoliberal texts, maybe not in the American neoliberals, who, as I say, have a sort of rather more kind of pragmatist, uh, empiricist approach to power, but actually, the question of decision, the question of exception, the question of sovereignty is there in Eucken and Rupke and, and particularly in the German neoliberals, some of whom actually were, were quite influenced by Carl Schmitt, um, as, as Quinslobadian's history shows. So I think that there is a sort of a, a, a different view of what neoliberalism means after 2008 than what it looked like between sort of roughly sort of, you know, the early 1980s and 2008. But if, if we follow up on that, so if we think before we just let's come on to the uh, like the post financial mm. crisis period and the, yeah, sure. the COVID period in a moment. But if, if we just pursue this line, um, the, the sort of governmentality line, I guess what I'm driving mm. at, and this goes to the idea about what is neoliberalism, is if you take this view that, you know, there isn't a sovereign center that's sort of generating these power systems, it's all coming from below. Um, Neoliberalism, however we understand it, was not the only set of discursive practices um, or ideas that were circulating through, for example, the 1990s. So if you, I mean, if you read, I don't know if you're familiar with, say, Mark Beaver's work on democratic mm. governance. I mean, he's a Foucauldian in, in, to all intents and purposes. Mm. And he argues that communitarian discourses, net, discourses about networks, were very influential in that period that couldn't necessarily easily be described as neoliberal. So what you end up with actually are hybrid discourses, mm. which have got strands of neoliberalism, but strands of something else. And so I guess my question is then, 
how do we evaluate what's actually happening when we're, what, what we're really talking about is this hybrid discursive realm. I guess it's yeah. fair to say sometimes there are hegemonic influences, that some are more influential than others. But is, mm. is that what people mean by neoliberalism, that it was more influential than these other discourses? Well, I think partly what they mean by neoliberalism, as far as the 90s is concerned, is the death of socialism. I mean, that's the, 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 the I mean, obviously, you know, the, 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 the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 was the sort of confirmation of the lack of an alternative in some sense. And, and also the death of um, uh, a project which, of course, cannot go away altogether. And in some ways it comes back with the whole problem of climate change, but uh, a, a project of, um, of, of, of a, of, of, of a political mandating of goals that usurps uh, the logic of the market, and of course, you know, uh, in 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 Hayek's analysis, this is the this is the road to serfdom. Is this this um, claim that it's possible to to sort of come up with a, a higher form of knowledge than that which is generated by the price system? Um, and in that sense, there's a sort of uh, an acceptance on that 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 that, that the market. Uh, will decide things and the market can know things that states can't any longer seek to uh, trump in some in some way and that of course the, the, the area where that that argument is is made it becomes most kind of powerful is in relation to finance and financial markets um, and the sense that actually um, you know that greater and greater and greater liquidity uh, translates into lower risk and the argument that that which of course is precisely what was then proved wrong in 2008 but the, the way that argument works is a neoliberal one which is that uh the more actors there are in the market the more um knowledge there will be within the um being fed into the in, into the financial markets and therefore the prices will become uh, more and more kind of truthful in some way i mean foucault says that ultimately what what happens with neoliberalism Actually, he says this about liberalism from Smith onwards, but but I think it becomes more acute with neoliberalism, is that the market becomes a zone of truth, uh, Foucault argues, that the price signal is not simply something concerning uh, welfare and uh, sort of efficiency and the kinds of things that um, economists think uh, markets are about, but actually the price system in a, a, attains a kind of constitutional function of, of generating facts uh, and, and, and revealing truths about, about things. Um, and I think that that, on a fairly hegemonic, in a fairly hegemonic way, I, I hear your point about these these other discourses being fed in. And of course, you know, Blair and, and and Clintonism, there were all sorts of things going on. There was, you know, Robert Putnam and social capital, and there was um, other um, notions of. I mean, there were other right wing discourses to do with sort of dependency and other these sorts of things that were also being fed in. Um, and um, Yes, communitarian ideas, people like Etzioni and, and these sorts of figures were were in the mix. So I completely hear hear what you're saying. Um, and of course, you know, the, 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 the argument that is constantly used against the very idea of neoliberalism is, oh, you know, you call Tony Blair a neoliberal, but actually the state grew during that time, which it's not that difficult to deal with that as an argument, actually, because there's, there's plenty of, I think the idea of a, of a left neoliberalism makes, makes perfect sense. And, um, you know, Foucault, um, was was quite quick on this to show that that people like Rougier and others in the, in the 1960s were arguing for sort of interventionist welfare states, but interventionist welfare states aimed towards boosting employability and uh, competitiveness and 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 and, and flexibility of 
of people's kind of relationships to their own skills and their own careers and this sort of thing, which is a, a distinctive neoliberal approach to the welfare state. So I think I think you're right. I think there were lots of other and and the other thing which I think also needs to be mentioned, uh, which I've sort of alluded to in in relation to to to, to um, people. You know, I mentioned Christopher Hood's work on on new public management. Um, you know, managerialism. Um, really, what what in the UK anyway, from the late 80s onwards, you could say that Thatcher, Thatcher spent the, the early 80s fighting inflation and the trade unions. Once those battles were, were sort of more or less won by the late 1980s, um, Thatcherism and then subsequently Major and Blairism becomes a project of public service reform as much as anything else in terms of things like you get the birth of Ofsted in education, you get the, uh, the our, our beloved research excellence framework or the research <laughs> assessment exercise was 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 at a similar time, you know, sort of um, and uh, a, a sort of what Mike Power from from uh, LSE calls the audit society, this kind of explosion of audit. So and the explosion of regulators, you know, Ofgem, Ofsted, Of I mean, that's much later of com, but you know, this, these various regulators, the, the way society will function is by taking the state out uh, in a fairly neoliberal fashion, or, but, but only certain kind of state. Meanwhile, a different version of the state, this, this version, which, as you say, might be, Mark Beaver's uh, work is concerned with, is this, this rise of governance. Um, and that is a, a, a vision of technocracy, but of a sort of, uh, I guess you could say a sort of post-socialist or, or a kind of non-socialist vision of technocracy. It's not a technocracy that someone like um, Neurath or, 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 or Langer would have recognised. It's a technocracy that oversees the, the 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 conditions of competition and is involved in kind of providing people with scores a lot of the time. It, it's, yeah. it's provide you know Ofsted goes around deciding who's which is a school is outstanding, which one is excellent, which one is good. The the ref decide whether our papers are four star or three star or two star something. So you get this kind of birth of a of a, of a sort of referee technocrat. Um, and in my you know, I put the limits of was that so? It's a disciplinary regime. You could say it is a disciplinary regime, but it's it's it's. It is, but it's discipline via competition because Foucault's notion of discipline in, in discipline and punish is a normalizing disciplinary power, which is trying to teach people to, to become average, basically. So it's about trying to show people how to, you know, use a knife and fork in the correct fashion or to or to or to walk in standard line. Whereas this is a form of a disciplinary power in which we're constantly trying to outdo the person who's doing better than us, effectively. Um, and that has a kind of economic logic, but it also has a kind of ethical and, and, and political dimension to it that many Foucauldian scholars have been interested in. So do you see, um, you know, what we have at the moment? I mean, lots of people are going on almost incessantly, it seems to me, about the importance of big data, artificial intelligence, mm. all of these sorts of things. Are, are those, do you see those as part of the same process of this sort of um, monitoring mm. type regime where you have these various classifications that are being mm. monitored, um, where people compare each other through things like big data techniques? Yeah, I mean, the, so the really interesting thing about this is, I think, you know, if, um, Big data is really curious because big data is very unlike a conventional audit in the, of the sort that, say, Mike Power is, has worked on over the years. Because audits conventionally are a little bit like, um, uh, well, they're tests, they, but they, have, uh, they tend to involve the publication of criteria. So we know with, you know, the, the ref has all of these endless documents about what counts as internationally important and, you know, all, this, all these kind of things. So you know what different scores mean and so on. So there is a very important emphasis within 
liberal and neoliberal governance placed upon the idea of transparency, which is about, so we've got these categories and we've got these criteria and therefore you know how you're going to end up in these different categories uh, because we're also making these criteria uh, known to you. Um, now, of course, I mean, something like the ref is a curious one because after they've decided everything, they then pretty much pulp all of the evidence. So it's not, there aren't very many ways of, of going back and finding out why your paper was, was given the mark that it was or anything like that. But nevertheless, there is some kind of form of procedural regularity. Big data um, does not have these kind of a priori kind of commensuration devices, because effectively the, the epistemology of big data is collect everything you can and then try to spot patterns within, within the data. Uh, so it's not um, a, an effort to go out and collect data according to a particular method, which is also how you know the social sciences tend to work or market research and these sorts of things, which is we've got these, these types and we're going to find out who, who goes in which one. Instead, it's an attempt to sweep as much data as you can and then algorithmically, in some sense, the, 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 the classifications are emergent from the data rather than the data being collected in order to fit the classifications. Now, that has very different kind of political implications. It, it's closer to... To, to what and this is what Deleuze refers to in his in his critique of Foucault as not a society of discipline but a society of control and if discipline is is normalizing that is it, it, it kind of puts people into it sort of brings people into categories and, and gets them to behave according to types control is a kind of constant sort of nudging in if you like which is you know a bit like sort of behavioral economic sense of nudging a constant steering constant kind of assessing of how, it, it's very much focused on real time um, and the interesting thing to me about big data is that the precedent for big data epistemology is is the one precisely that Hayek found in in, in the catalaxy of the market and is and he's and has been celebrated by those um, who have in the past have, have held up financial markets as the kind of height of as the height of transparency and the height of reason because in a way what you know the the, the price signal of a financial market is doing is providing this constant update on how things are right this moment. They are, you know, what, what some people call kind of now casting as, a, as opposed to kind of future forecasting devices. And in a way, you know, the, the, the promise of big data is to be able to put decision makers in touch with everything as, the, as it is at the moment in some way, that it's a kind of a, a sort of hypersensory device rather than a, a hyper um, rationalizing device. And that that I think is in some ways owes more to um, the Hayekian critique of social science as, as, as he developed in the 1930s, you know, of, of scientism in, in social science, um, uh, than it does to, to the traditions of audit and social science themselves. Wouldn't, wouldn't that depend, though, on how, how people do actually conceptualise what big data is about? Because, I mean, one of Hayek's key points is that prices are different. Prices are not the same as statistics. And yeah, it sure. strikes me a lot of people who speak about big data equate um, data or statistics with the kind of thing that prices do. And that's precisely one of the things that Hayek would have denied on the yeah. grounds that there's an awful lot of tacit information that people have that actually cannot be expressed in a statistical form. So, yeah. I mean, my take on that would be... Um, you know, people in a market economy can use big data in different sorts of ways. But if yeah. you're a, if you're taking the Hayekian view, it cannot be a replacement for what prices do, because prices are no, not the same um, as statistics. No, but I mean, if you say it depends what kind of data we're talking about, of course, but I think there's an important epistemological distinction between, um, let's say, a theory led data 
collection process, which I think is what someone like Hayek was opposed to because it was a kind of Platonism, effectively. It's like mm -hmm. a, an elevation of ideas above above um, experience and, and, and sensations, um, which is what most social sciences are. So, you, you know, if you were a sociologist of stratification, you have these different um, uh, types of, 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 of where people are in terms of the professional uh, classes and so on. Um, and you then, on the basis of that, you design your survey instrument in order to decide what to put people, where to put people in it. So it's, it's sort of theory leads um, research design and then kind of determines methodology and, and, and in some sense uh, influences data. Whereas what I think is really interesting at the moment, um, and uh, Mike Savage's uh, book, new book on inequality is, is, is really good on this, is, is the, the, effectively what, a lot of what we mean by big data is um, sweeping up um, quantitative evidence that happens to have been accumulated by default, not by design. Uh, and Savage is, you know, the, the, one of the great examples of this for Savage would be Thomas Piketty, uh, because what Piketty does, where his, his work on inequality comes from over hundreds and hundreds of years, is going into kind of archives in the way that historians habitually have done and finding it in sort of tax records. So it's not about trying to kind of use um, devices that have been built in order to find information about inequality. It's trying to kind of uh, sort of inductively sort of piece together on the basis of the data that's lying around. Now, this then means that the question of the completeness of, uh, of data is no longer one about validity of theory, but about um, extent of surveillance. So the, the, the quality of big data or the sort of um, the validity of big data, in some sense, it comes down to the sort of the reach of one's platform. Um, now, if you're Amazon and you've got Alexas in people's houses, um, the data starts to become far closer to Hayek's vision of price than to say, you know, Durkheim's vision of statistics, because mm -hmm. Alexa is listening to people the entire time, whether they like it or not. And it's not just listening to what they say, it's listening to how they say it, it's listening to their tone of voice. It's trying to find out uh, different forms of emotional distress that people might be under. It is uh, trying to piece that together with what they do uh, on the internet. Equally, you know, um, Facebook is tracking people whether or not they're using Facebook, that's the way their APIs work, is that you know you can be on other websites, but Facebook is tracking it. So effectively, what these companies are, are in the job of, in my view, is effectively trying to build platforms that have, maybe they'll never have as much reach as the global market, which ultimately has a kind of epistemic um, authority that, that no, no single human can ever match for, for Hayek. Um, but nevertheless, if you build a platform that has that much reach, you are beginning to, a break into a kind of epistemic territory that for Hayek belongs to the market rather than to the kind of rather rather more kind of um, I guess you know theory-led uh, epistemology that we traditionally associate with social science. So in that sense, I think big data is is potentially a kind of uh, you know bridges between a Hayekian worldview and the worldview of those that Hayek was was trying to um, oppose. That's that's really interesting. Uh, that's really really interesting. Thank you very much for that. Um, I wonder if we could go on just in the final part of the, the the conversation to think about, you know, where is neoliberalism going, or where is the current sort of policy environment going as you see it? Um, I mean, in your own piece in this volume, you talk about a sort of anti-neoliberal trend, which is this sort of attempt to repatriate supply chains arguments, which sound quite protectionist in, in many ways, mm. which are sort of against the logic of the global market. Um, 
could you say a little bit more about that and how influential you think that trend is? Certainly in the context of, of perhaps of Brexit or some of the other events that are happening in Europe, relative to other sorts of trends that may, may push in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, you know the, we we keep being kind of blindsided by developments at the moment. History is is sort of so kind of alive at the moment. It's, you can be you can get things very wrong, and I'm sure I've I've got a few things wrong in in in, in bits and pieces I've written over recent years. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, the special issue was put together before COVID. We then wrote a, an introduction, Nick Gain and I, which tried to reflect on on, on the, the, the the kind of consequences of COVID. Um, in particular, you know that COVID. There were a couple of pre twenty twenty dimensions of of, of of political economy that, that seemed to be exacerbated. One is the kind of uh, uh, rebordering of the world, you know, the sort of deepening of of, of kind of national um, uh, uh, differences and, and boundaries. And the second is the the, the ongoing um, uh, rise of the platform economy of one kind or another. I mean, these are kind of fairly obvious consequences of of what's happened over the last over the last two years, eighteen months. Um, so I think in terms of this sort of repatriation, this renationalization. I mean, clearly, um, I mean, populism offered um, populist rhetoric and the appeal of populism clearly in an electoral sense was partly was partly about a kind of a desire to reject the, the metropolises, the, the, the elites, the, 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 the central banks and this sort of thing. Um, and clearly some of that rhetoric has now uh, become um, normalised within, well, certainly in, in the UK. I mean, whether Johnson is actually serious about sort of levelling up and this sort of thing, and but, but nevertheless, the sort of cultural aspect of Brexit and so on seems to become a kind of uh, a sort of mainstream part of, of British politics. The fact that you know, Labour has to go to such lengths to try to uh, convince people that it is on the side of, of, of the military—I mean, partly a, a legacy of the, the Corbyn um, leadership—but nevertheless, there is there is a sense that the cultural has become obviously more important over the last five years. Um, I think that. You know, some of the, the interesting things to watch are obviously what um, central banks do about inflation. I mean, this is a, a huge one because if neoliberalism by probably the most conventional histories of neoliberalism, not of neoliberal thought, but of neoliberal policy, see it as beginning with the monetarist assaults on um, inflation in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. And that's seen as being the kind of, you know, the, the transition from, from Keynesian or out of the crisis of Keynesianism into neoliberalism was um, uh, these punitively high interest rates in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, which also created very, very high unemployment. Now, we now, there, there are curious signs that that, we're, that that is not being repeated because after all we, we currently see inflation rising at the moment in the UK interest rates are not going up we see tightening of labor markets I mean Andrew Bailey has said that if we did see wage-led inflation then he would put interest rates up but often they speak much more hawkishly than they actually behave at the moment so they seem to kind of send out these sort of signals to the market but they're not doing much about them um, Jerome Powell in the United States in the summer of 2020 said he would now be prepared to accept some kind of, I can't remember how he put it, but sort of medium term inflation. He sees that as being a, 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 a something that he would accept. Again, this is a complete defiance of um, sort of Friedman economics and, and, and so on. Um, and I think that that has to partly be seen in the United States against the backdrop of a possible collapse of the Republic, really. You know, I mean, what happened in January 
um, uh, of this year with the storming of the capital. I think there has to be, a, there, there seems to be a recognition um, that unless there can be some kind of greater sharing of prosperity, um, which might involve some 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 tightening of labor markets, wage inflation, and so on, that actually some serious kind of there might be a very very serious political fallout. Now that in in that sense there is that is the kind of end of of, of neoliberalism. There's a, there's a terrific blog post um, on the New Left Review blog post by the French economist Cédric Durand called 1979 in reverse, basically makes this kind of argument that I'm, I'm currently making, actually. That's probably where I'm sort of being very influenced by that particular piece. But it's it, it's trying to look at how some some key tenets of neoliberalism have been, have been abandoned. Um, meanwhile, of course, there is, you know, the fact that um, Brexit is sort of kind of more or less out of the way at the moment and Biden is in power means that the English-speaking world is, is no longer quite so alarmed by by the sort of drift towards the the, the, the power of the far right, uh, but you know certain nationalist, xenophobic, anti-refugee, um, uh, uh, Islamophobic, but also anti-green forces on the right have not they haven't disappeared. I mean, they, they these things are you know what Farage's next move in the UK is is it's many people are thinking you know it could turn into a referendum on net zero, um, but equally you know there are very complicated uh, political forces all over. Europe at the moment, and and Trump is currently favourite to to be the next United States president. So you know, I mean, the 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 kind of the the, the political turbulence of the last few years, um, we took our eye off it in relation to COVID in in in, in certain respects. But um, you know, some of these aspects of the kind of post neoliberal question have uh, have not gone away. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about the question of um, nationalism, which I think you know is very important here. Um, liberalism, not just neoliberalism, but sort of liberalism as a sort of philosophical perspective has always had this sort of interesting tension with, with nationalism in the sense that, you know, nations seem to be in some sense anti-individualistic. But on the other hand, uh, many liberal movements have been influenced by ideas about national self-determination or self-governance or, or these kinds of ideas which you can think about in the context of Brexit or some of the other movements that are operative in Europe and, and I guess it, it it takes us back in a way to you know the question I, I, I started off with about whether there's an essence of neoliberalism or not um, or and, and how useful it is to to use those kind of terms. So mm. I, I read the piece by, is it Dorit Gaver? I'm not, I'm not familiar yeah. with her work particularly, but she was trying to make the argument that some of the things that are going on in, in Hungary are a kind of mutation of, mm. of neoliberalism. Um, but that, that struck me as being, I found that argument implausible mm. in the sense that mm. we also have the nationalism of the Scottish National Party, but one yeah. wouldn't necessarily say that that is neoliberal. Um, so um, unless you're very precise about how the sort of concepts yeah. map onto each other. Um, I mean, I think so that, you know, again, it's a question about different genealogies of neoliberalism. And, 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 and as I said earlier, I don't believe there's an essence of neoliberalism. I think what they're, I mean, Dorit gave us a paper, talks about Orban's government as being ordo-nationalist. Um, yeah. And the ordo is a yeah. kind of, uh, is a sort of reference, you know, to, reference to the ordo-liberalism of yeah. the Freiburg School. Now, the ordo-liberals, the ordo-liberals uh, you know, it's easy to sort of, I think part of what, what the histories of neoliberalism have done really well with Slobodian, um, Melinda Cooper, Wendy Brown and, and others uh, have, have done very usefully is to, to, to show how ambivalent 
certain aspects of the neoliberal intellectual trajectory were. If, if we're willing to say that there was a neoliberal intellectual trajectory, which I think is, I think is a more reasonable thing to, 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 to say than that there is an essence, because after all, from Mises via Hayek, via um, you know the, the first generation Chicago school, um, via the all-day liberals, I mean, they saw themselves as allies. They saw themselves as, 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 as sort of outcasts from a kind of Keynesian uh, corporatist socialist yeah. establishment, and they saw themselves as being the kind of fringe that needed to save liberty. And, and I mean, this was self-conscious. So I don't think it's too much of a reach to say that they, they, had, they had a common project. Um, but I think it's worth, um, you know, one of the things which is interesting, um, and, you know, is that the um, many of the order liberals, the other person, Werner Bonefeld's work is really good on, on order liberals, um, which shows quite how morally conservative they were, you know, yeah. not like, I mean, Milton Friedman was a libertarian and a relativist, frankly, yeah. you know, he was, yeah. he was, he thought live and let live, you know, if you, if you want to go to war, that's fine, but you should be paid properly for, it. you know, there's a sort of sense of kind of like, you know, that the market is really good because it doesn't ever force anyone what to, to tell what to, doesn't force anyone to do anything they don't want to do kind of thing. Um, and uh, whereas the, the liberals of, of Rupka, in particular Rupka and um, Oiken, um, uh, Berm and others, um, very strong sense of, 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 of patriarchal norms, of, of, of the property owning family as being um, the uh, as being the basis for what, I, I can't remember if this is Oiken's term, maybe it's Werner Bonefeld's kind of own term, but of what they call deproletarianization, that the, the, the threat facing Europe in the 1930s and 40s was that of mass society, that people become part of this kind of mob, you know, a sort of that they join trade unions, that they get behind strong leaders and they become part of this mass. And the way to fight that was not actually the individual or the consumer or, 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 or I mean, obviously it was the market, but the, the, the crucial uh, sort of addition to the market, as Thatcher herself also said, was the family, and that the family had to have strong gender roles, um, property owning, uh, patriarchal, um, and uh, Christian as well. I mean, that there's a sort of strong uh, Christian dimension to this. Now, in a, unfortunately, that also often went together with some quite strong uh, racial hierarchies. I mean, this is what Slobodian's book uh, reveals uh, in quite shocking details of of, of how um, uh, you know, and, and, and Melinda Cooper's contribution to our volume, incidentally, our, our Theory, Culture and Society edition, which is about Murray Rothbard, the American libertarian, who had uh, very racist uh, ideas about who was capable of living an independent property owning lifestyle, you know, that, you know, yes, liberal, liberal individualism, but not for everybody, you know, that some people um, have the kind of biological uh, makeup that allows them to become strong um, uh, property owning decision makers, uh, who can uh, act in a kind of you know rational, independent fashion in a, in a market society, but not everybody. And I think that you know again, also Nancy McLean's uh, work on on public choice reveals some some very ugly uh, racial dimensions to some of the kind of early uh, concerns of, of people like Buchanan. Uh, now, you know, some people might say, well. <laughs> eugenics was 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 was, yeah. was accepted across the political spectrum in those days and so on so it's not that they were sort of uniquely racist but nevertheless you could argue that that, that there is an aspect to, to what to, to, to their to their arguments which um uh that that drew in important ways on ideas of what was natural that i think is is what 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 is is, is worth hanging on to is the recognition that they themselves were kind of essentialist about certain things I think I think that's um, that's a fair point about 
about the auto liberals, the kind of communitarian or conservative aspect. Mm. There's a moralism there. I think that's a fair mm. point. I also think you're right about um, some of Rothbard's ideas or some of the people associated with him. And it's actually been responsible for a kind of schism in the libertarian mm. movement in the United States because of those associations. I don't think, and I, I hope you don't mind me saying this, I, I don't yeah. think McLean's portrayal of Buchanan is accurate at all. I mean, right. lots of people have actually unearthed letters that Buchanan wrote, explicitly saying that he didn't want uh, educational vouchers um, mm. to be used uh, in a way that would allow for racial segregation. In fact, he wrote mm. to the Institute of Economic Affairs saying, mm. if you're advocating vouchers in the UK, be aware of the fact that they've been manipulated by some people in yeah. America to push for segregation. I mean, mm. Buchanan um, was an egalitarian. He believed in 100% inheritance tax. Mm. Um, mm. So he wanted most things to be left to the market because he felt it was more, in his view, democratic than politics. Yeah. But I don't think it's fair. I think she's wrong to characterize him as having racist over, over times. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm glad you did say that because it's, you know, it's important to, to offer the other side. I know that book was extremely controversial. I mean, I yeah. think that, you know, what, I mean, um, Slobodian's more recent work, it's not in, in this, this volume, um, but he, you know, he's, I think he's currently working on, on this, but he has this, this article, if, if, if anyone Googles uh, Hayek's Bastards, I think it's called, but which is about uh, particular figures on the American libertarian right who basically dropped all of what looked like the sort of almost the sort of quasi-social democratic aspect of Hayek, which is, yeah. you know, we need to kind of pay for roads and pay for, you know, a basic yeah. social safety net and the stuff that's in the road serfdom and actually looks quite left wing by some standards. Um, uh, but, the, you know, there's a sort of there's a there's a set of, 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 of descendants who have grasped very heavily onto Ludwig von Mises at the, the Mises Institute in Alabama and, and these sorts of places who have basically sort of um, tried to ally a, um, a, a, a an extreme kind of anarcho-capitalist respect for uh, the market with uh, a kind of eugenicist um, and nationalist idea of the how the market will, uh, what kinds of hierarchies uh, will, should, I'm not sure if it's will or should, but <laughs> some, somewhere between the two, uh, will emerge once you have a properly a competitive, properly enterprising economy, then these uh, more kind of eugenicist hierarchies will emerge, and and and, and this is partly, I think, if I, I don't mean to kind of, <laughs> Quinn should 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 speak for his own work, but I think it's partly a, a, an attempt to to sort of grasp, kind of, you know, you know, was Trump uh, purely an aberration and a, and a sort of uh, a, 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 a sort of disruption against the market, or could we see Trump uh, also actually as sort of um, something that has emerged? From within the American right, which is actually not necessarily a, the, the, the kind of enemy of neoliberalism, but a kind of splinter movement um, that, along with sort of Charles Murray and, and, and concepts of, 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 of intelligence, um, science and this sort of thing, has, has turned heavily towards notions of, of, of biology, of nature, of race, of, 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 of sort of nationalist notions of, of difference, um, and has tried to kind of marry all of that in ways that other neoliberals would have nothing to do with, let's be very clear, yeah. but has tried to marry a lot of that stuff to some um, uh, kind of argument for um, a sort of, you know, um, uh, red-blooded uh, free market capitalism. If, if you're looking for a good example of that, I would, I would point to Hans Hermann Hoppe, who mm. was very influenced by Murray Rothbard, 
um, and who has explicitly got, um, I would say, um, a sort of racist reading of, of a certain kind of libertarianism. So I'm not sure whether Quinn Slobodian has, has looked at him specifically, but if you're looking for someone who fits the description of what you yeah. just put forward, it would be him. But interestingly, he was a, he, his PhD supervisor was Habermas. Um, <laughs> so there are interesting connections there. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't believe Habermas for a minute <laughs> endorsed those, <laughs> those kind of views, but if you're actually looking at the genealogy of these mm. people's ideas, it'd be interesting to, to, to try to understand how someone like Hoppy, who's influenced by, on the one hand, Rothbardian, a, mm. a, a Rothbardian interpretation of Austrian economics and um, Habermasian ethics at the same mm. time. He's a very interesting character. I mean, and the one thing which, if I, if, if, if I may just sort of add one more kind of detail from the Theory, Culture, Society um, collection. Um, I yeah. mean, there's a couple of papers in that, um, one by Harrison Smith and Roger Burroughs on Urbix, which is a kind of neo-reactionary um, software um, uh, project. Um, uh, and another paper by Alan Finlayson uh, um, on the alt-right and some of the kind of rhetorical, uh, the rhetoric of outright communities online. Um, and, and I think what the relevance of these to, to what we're talking about is that what what these 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 this sort of it's almost like a splinter from the splinter movement in a way because it's a sort of it's a politics of pure exit as 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 uh, Harrison Smith and Roger Burroughs' paper explores. Um, it's a politics of of of, a, of such a radical libertarianism that it wants to sort of effectively abandon territory altogether in in, in some way, uh, a bit like the sort of seasteading and the, the kind of Peter Thiel stuff. Um, uh, but equally, you know, what, what Alan Finlayson's paper shows is the sort of uh, this hatred of what is perceived to be a politically correct uh, liberal elite. Um, and I think that what those movements suggest is that um, the neoliberalism of, if we can call it that, if you, <laughs> of, of sort of the 1990s third way um, sort of left a kind of a legacy of or, or, whether you call it neoliberalism, whether you call it kind of governance, governmentality and so on, but sort of created this kind of um, professional managerial class of technocrats, of the people running all of these kind of, you know, regulators, central banks, Ofsted, Ofgem, Off, whatever, um, that the world seemed to now be run by these sort of over-educated um, liberal metropolitan types who seem to have all of this power. They weren't elected. They didn't seem to respect the market. Uh, who the hell were they? Oh, they will probably all know each other and they're all voting for, for these kind of centrist liberal parties. Um, and that just as in some ways Brexit was a kind of rebellion against that class, whether real or imagined, equally, I think what, what, what Finlayson and, and, and Smith and Burroughs' paper is about is about a sort of really kind of very radical rejection of, uh, of everything that the, the, the government and the state seem to have become, initially in the name of some vision of globalization and so on, but ultimately that this had become another form of kind of big state socialism. And, and, and you know, this idea that actually, you know, all of these central bankers are probably sort of, and, and some of it verges into forms of racism and anti-Semitism and, and so on, but a conspiracy theory. Um, it, this is the more radical end, and this this is this this is the end which doesn't have you know an institute in Alabama and a, and a think tank in Washington D.C. This is the this is the stuff that goes out on goes on online, but arguably is quite powerful when it comes to uh, you know the, the the early career of some political career of someone like Donald Trump. Okay, well that's that's great. So I wonder if you could just finish off by saying you know what's next for you? What are you going to be working on next? Um, well, uh, what am I doing? I mean, I, 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 um, 
I'm, I'm quite an inheritance at the moment. So I've been kind of doing this work for a while, trying to think through different notions of inheritance, both in an economic, ecological and, and, and existential sense of, of which, of course, I mean, Piketty's work and, and, and others has done a lot to highlight how important inheritance has become within contemporary capitalism. So that's something which I'm, I'm trying to kind of develop into a, into a larger project. I've done some initial work on it, but that's something I want to, want to explore um, because it's, 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 a, it's a concept that I think particularly thanks to Piketty, people now are really very aware of, of, of the sort of, you know, people are studying the super rich, people are looking at things like family offices and, and these sorts of things that, that manage, manage wealth. Uh, Brooke Harrington's work on, on wealth management is, is fascinating. Uh, but I think that that's something which I'm trying to sort of look a little bit more into at the moment. Okay, well, that's, well, that sounds great. I look forward to um, reading about that in due course. So thank you very much, Will Davies. Thanks very much for having me.